Welcome to the Lamb and Wolf's Clothing Podcast. This is Juan Blea, addiction counselor and writer from Santa Fe, New Mexico. And I am thrilled today in this episode to present Dr. Leslie Hayes. Uh, she's about as close to a rock star within the treatment, addiction treatment community as there is. Um, I know my, myself look up, look up to you, Dr. Hayes. I think and um, all the trainings that I've sat in where you've presented, it's been informative and learning. Um, so I consider you uh, a pseudo-mentor of, of sorts, even though directly we've never had that contact, but roundabout through Project Echo and things like that. I'd, I really look up to you and admire the work that you do here in, in Rio County in New Mexico. I mean, you truly are a, a warrior in this fight. Um, I want to mention and I want to congratulate you directly for becoming a champion of change for the Obama White House back in April of 2016. Thank you. Um, what was that like? That was actually pretty darn cool. I got to meet some people who... I just thought were incredible. I mean, do you remember back in the eighties? The you know, this is your drug. This this is your brain. This is your brain. I got to meet the guy who did that. He still works in the field. He has continued this for the last thirty years, and he's just you know, he's done some amazing things. I got to meet a woman who um, uh, uh, lost a son to drugs, and she said when her son was diagnosed, she realized. There was no support for women who had children with using drugs. She said, you know, if her son had been diagnosed with diabetes or with leukemia, people would have brought over casseroles and, you know, um, offered all kinds of support. But she said, you can't even admit to your friends that this is going on. And so she started this wonderful website called The Addict's Mom for women who have children with using drugs. And it just it provides a lot of support to um, parents. And just some people who've done some amazing things across the country on uh, drug use. And, and and so was it? Did you actually get to, to see the president? Or? No, but but I got um, the Surgeon General, Dr. Vivek Murthy, right. who is one of my personal heroes, and Michael Botticelli, who was oh, the wow. drug czar at the time, yeah. who just. You know, he is so incredible. I got to meet both of them, so oh, that was really cool. amazing. That was really cool. I know when. Uh, uh, that night it was on the news. It was just like a was like a viewing event in my house. So yeah. it, was, it was pretty exciting. It was oh. very very exciting. So congratulations. Thank you. So tell us a little bit about yourself. I mean, what is your 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 formal training? I know you're from Los Alamos, and so it's it's really nice that you actually you know grew up just a couple of miles away from here, really. Yeah. And so, so kind of how did how did you get to this place? So when I got into medical school, my grandfather um, was an alcoholic, very active in AA. And he was determined, as he put it, to have at least one person in the medical field know something about alcoholism and Alcoholics Anonymous. And so he actually dragged me to a few AA meetings. And his um, buddies, when they were introduced to me, would say, get all excited and say, oh, are you an alcoholic too? (laughs) And I always felt vaguely guilty answering (laughs) grandpa's buddies that no, I wasn't an alcoholic because they looked so disappointed. But that got me started being interested, and I did an extra rotation in addiction in medical school oh, because wow, of that. Did you? Yeah, and then I also did one in residency. So that got me started, and then moving to Española, um, had a lot of interaction with people with both alcohol and drug use disorder. But when we first started, there was so little to be done. And I do remember one patient when I very first started, and she really desperately wanted to get into a treatment program. And at that time, there was so few options for treatment in the mm-hmm. state, and so. The waiting list at that time was something like two to three months. And so what would happen was we'd get her on the wait list, and eventually she'd move to the top of the list. But by that point, her addiction was so bad that she was lost. You couldn't find her. And so she never was actually able to get into treatment. And then, you know, three months later, she'd come in and we'd get her back on the wait list. So finally, two years later, I saw she'd been arrested on drug-related charges. 
And so I followed the case in the the newspaper. I was no longer seeing her as a patient. She disappeared at that point. And eventually, after a year, I saw that they um, weren't going to send her to jail because they were going to send her to treatment instead. Mm-hmm. And I'm like, ah, we've been trying to do this for yeah, three years. If they could have done it three years ago. So, so when um, Project Echo said that they were going to start offering trainings in buprenorphine, I was already working with Project Echo, and okay. I really wanted to get trained in buprenorphine. And so... And I was the first person up here to get the waiver to be able to prescribe buprenorphine. Oh, really? I was. So, so you really are a pioneer in this whole in this whole thing. Yeah, and I didn't really think about what that meant when I did it. I was just like, oh, good, I'll be able to do something to help. But at the time, I was the only person in the community doing it. And so I got a lot of experience very quickly. And, so, and how long ago was that? Ten years. Wow. No, it was 11 years. It was uh, late 2006. Wow. Was it 2006? Well, that was really when it was still kind of a yeah very kind of a, what is that kind of stuff. Yeah. And I mean, even though, even now, I mean, you're still talking about suboxone and buprenorphine and things like that. People are still kind of a, what is that? But yeah. Yeah, we'll get to that a little bit more in a minute. But okay. how long have you, how long, so you've been practicing medicine here in Espanol for how long? 20, it'll be 23 years in December. Wow. Yeah. That's incredible. It's pretty much the first place I came after I finished residency. Oh, so this is basically yeah. where your whole practice has been. Yeah. Oh, very cool. I love Espanola. Do you? I do. Yeah, you and uh, Steve Stucker, the beautiful Espanola Valley, <laughs> says. Um, so what do you see as the biggest obstacle to treatment? So there's several. Um, probably the biggest obstacle. So I'm going to state flat out that for opiate use disorder, I think the best treatment is medication-assisted therapy. It's got much better evidence than um, any of the other things. And I think counseling is very important for people to get their lives back on track. Um, I think inpatient can definitely be beneficial for some people, but medication-assisted therapy, which is buprenorphine and methadone, have by far and away the best evidence. Um, So there are not nearly enough prescribers people who can prescribe the buprenorphine, and there are not nearly enough methadone clinics in the state. Um, There was, at one point, a two-year time period where we couldn't get people on new patients on methadone in Espanola, which was very tough. Um, So there are not nearly enough prescribers, and then, so that's the biggest problem as far as the medical field is that we just don't have enough um, people available um, to provide the help that's needed, although that is definitely improving. From the patient perspective, it really is, I would say, that people have a lot of prejudice against medication-assisted therapy. And I often hear from people, well, it's just another addiction. And um, what I respond to that is that for medical people, we make a real distinction between physical dependence and addiction. And um, many medications and other things cause physical dependence. For instance, a lot of the blood pressure medications that I prescribe can cause physical dependence. And people stop these abruptly, they feel terrible, they can get, you know, very high blood pressure, headaches, you know, rapid heart rate, various things like that. But these medications are not addictive at all. And then on the other hand, medications like, or not medications, drugs like cocaine and methamphetamine don't cause much withdrawal at all, but these are very, very addictive drugs. Mm-hmm. So just because buprenorphine and methadone cause physical dependence does not mean that they're addictive. What matters for addiction is whether or not people's lives are spiraling out of control. Are they able to hold down a job? Are they able to take care of um, their family? Do they have friends that they can do things with? Um, Are they getting medical complications? And if you look at buprenorphine and methadone on those counts, 
there's no question. People on methadone and buprenorphine are far more stable than people using OxyContin um, for non-medical reasons or for people using heroin. I mean, they're much less likely to be getting infected with HIV and hepatitis C. They're much less likely to be going to jail. They're much more likely to be holding down a job. They're more likely to have custody of their children and being, being doing a good job raising them. So, I mean, they, these medications are not addictive. And I understand that people would rather not take medications, but for instance, my patients with diabetes who are on insulin, we don't call, you know, insulin a crutch or, you know, right. we call this a miracle cure. And that's how I view medication-assisted therapy as a miracle cure for what is very often a fatal disease. So, yeah, what about, I know, you know, primarily, I'm mostly concerned with, with opiate use disorders, opioid use disorders, but what mm -hmm. about medication-assisted therapy for alcoholism? What, what, do you, what do you think about that? So medication-assisted for therapy for um, opioid use disorder is by far and away the best treatment. For alcohol use disorder, it's a useful adjunct. It's definitely not strong enough on its own. For um, alcoholism, we use naltrexone, which, which is at best a really weak medication for um, uh, opiate use disorder, but it's actually got a little bit better evidence for alcohol. And then um, acamprosate, and you know, both of these are okay, but they're definitely not like methadone and buprenorphine. Yeah. And with um, alcoholism, you definitely need a lot more of the psychosocial treatment as well. More psychosocial treatment. Yes. Okay. And so in terms of these obstacles, in terms of lack of prescribing physicians and things like that, um, what about like NA and those types of things? How do you think the how do you think the conflict plays? Because a lot of times in the facilities that I work, there are twelve step facilities, they kinda they kinda don't really like the medication assisted therapy route. And so what about the internal? Do you see that as a barrier to treatment at all? This this like internal conflict within the treatment community? Yeah, there's actually I'm really surprised by how big a conflict there is and that has definitely much less than it was 10 years ago um, 10 years ago I found that there was you know a group of people who just were violently opposed and then you know sort of the physicians who often we weren't referring to psychosocial treatment maybe enough and I think that has kind of broken down some but there's still definitely um, a, a, a persistent large um, contingent who are opposed to medication-assisted therapy in the commun treatment community. And what can we do about that? Education? More outreach? Education. I think, um, I mean, I we've got facts on our side. The studies all show that um, patients who use buprenorphine and methadone do far better. They're far less likely to die. I mean, the original study of buprenorphine, I forget when it was from, but I think late 90s or early 2000s by Keiko, K-A-K-K-O. Mm -hmm. Um, they took 20 patients and put them on buprenorphine and 20 patients and did a buprenorphine taper. And then they gave all of them uh, three hours of meetings, three times a week, and an hour of counseling a week, if I remember correctly, but pretty intensive psychosocial therapy. Okay. And what they found is at the end of a month, um, none of the patients um, on the uh, um, buprenorphine taper, they were on placebo, none of those patients were still in treatment. Um, Six, 15 out of the 20 on the buprenorphine were still in treatment at the end of a year. And four of the patients on the placebo were dead. I mean, I can't believe they continued the study after they had, you know, a couple right. deaths. But, you know, they had four deaths in the group that was not. I mean, that is a huge difference. You know, to me, as soon as I read that, I thought, we got to be doing the medication-assisted therapy. Yeah. 
Because mm-hmm. that's actually that's what was operative. That's clearly yeah. what was operative. Yeah. And I think that's one of the things people don't realize is that with these types of medications, and when they're done under uh, the right environment with the right type of you know prescription and stuff mm-hmm. like that, they're very powerful and effective. Yeah. I think what happens a lot of times is the malingering. I think that kind of happens yeah. a little bit where they're taking you know they're doing wacky stuff with the with the with the meds, but. That happens a lot less than what people realize, and I think yeah. the people who really want to get healthy and get, get, you know, get over their dependence and things like that, yeah. it really does work. Well, it's interesting because one of the huge problems is the diversion that the meds are diverted into the community, which is an issue. And I spend, I can't tell you how much of my time, you know, trying to figure out ways to get around it and, and you know, make it so that people aren't diverting. But there wouldn't be any need for diversion if there were enough people prescribing. Mm-hmm. I mean, the reason it's being diverted is because people can't get it through the official channels. So. Yeah, that's true. And so to that end, right, one of the questions that I get all the time, uh-huh. and I really want your insight on this because it's, it's just overwhelming. Anytime I do a, a class or a workshop or anything, the question that I always get is, is, what can I do as a mom, as a husband, as a father, as a brother, as a whatever, to help the addict in my family? So what can families do? What can families do to quote-unquote, help people with addictions? Oh, it's tough. So first off, I'm going to say, while I love NA and AA, I do disagree that people have to hit bottom before they can get treatment. That's one thing that I really think um, is we've just found is not true, and that um, people, people just need to be ready to get into treatment. Um, I think um, being supportive... Trying not to shame people, I think there's a lot of shaming that goes on, and um, I find that this is not helpful. And and that's you know there's often this talk of enabling, which um, I I think can be very hard to distinguish between being supportive and being enabling. But I will say the opposite of enabling is not shaming. You you should never be trying to shame people because that is so rarely effective, and I think often leads people into relapse. Um, when they're doing well. And I think the real thing is um, providing support, both emotional and financial, for the things that actually work. So getting them into treatment programs. Um, you know, And I always tell people, number one thing they can do is just have Narcan in the house because you want to keep them alive. So That's a really big one. So keeping Narcan in the house, and can people get Narcan? Yes. Public health, um, if uh, they can go to their primary care, um, physician and have the um, primary care provider can send in a prescription. Um, there are so many places throughout the state that people can get Narcan at this time. So Santa Fe Recovery Center in this area does a great job with that. So, yeah. Well, thank you very much. That's that's actually a big one is having Narcan at hand. I don't think yeah. people realize that they have access to it. So, but what I find, the other thing is um, I think for people to educate themselves from reliable sources about what actually works because I find a lot of my family members really are pursuing things that I don't necessarily think is all that beneficial so what, what is like a reliable source what would you consider a reliable source um so a lot of the national organizations like um SAMHSA the Subs- substance abuse and mental health um, administration has a lot of stuff for families CDC has some fairly good information um, NIDA, the National Institute on Drug Abuse, has good information. I honestly think the the you know official organizations have some very good things. I think the American Society of Addiction Medicine also has um, uh, a section for family members. So, yeah. So basically, some 
some random article on Facebook probably isn't necessarily reliable. It depends. Some of them can be great, but not all the time. Right. And so in terms of all this, right, and, you know, I, I know that when we talk about 12-step programs and we talk about, you know, one of the, the first step is, second step, or one of the steps is, is to, you know, higher power and all that good stuff. Uh-huh. But what do you think the role of spirituality is within treatment? Um, I think it depends on the person. I mean, there are definitely people who have had really awful experiences with religion who are not going to want anything to do with that. And then there are some who are just for whatever reason not religious to begin with. So I think requiring that of anyone um, going into treatment is probably going to, you know, mean that there's a substantial portion of the population who are, you know, just going to be turned off and not end up getting treatment. But I've definitely seen, you know, for many of my patients who maybe are not in good contact with their family and, you know, don't have friends who don't use, it always makes me so happy when they come in and say, I found a church and they are so supportive of me. I mean, I think the connection that people can get and then I think for many people, having that um, spiritual guidance um, from God or from whoever you know they see as their, um, their source of spiritual guidance really does make a huge difference. But I, I don't think we should make recovery that the only source of recovery, because so, that's not going to work for everyone. Yeah, so it shouldn't be a primary source because then it could end up becoming a barrier. Yeah. Okay, excellent. And so let's talk a little bit specifically about Rereba County. Um, and not necessarily in terms of why it is how it is, mm-hmm. but more so from the path. What is the path out of, of where we're at in terms of uh, the opioid crisis here in Yoruba County? Because I think the insight can be shared nationally because I think there is this perspective that there is this national opioid crisis. And really what I'm trying to figure out is what are the what are the solutions to it? What are the possible paths out of this? So, I mean, we have what we mentioned buprenorphine. But what are some of the other things that we can that we can look at? So first off, I'm going to say making treatment available for everyone who needs it, and then um, beyond that, um, I think there's a lot of things that we need to do. So these are just on the treatment end, and I think the path out ultimately is more on the prevention end. So, but we got to get the people who are already in the depths of it out. So making sure we're providing adequate resources to pregnant women and then to people raising children um, to take care of the kids, I think is really important. Um, Housing, I wish that there was a lot more halfway houses for um, people with substance use disorder. Right now, as far as I know, we don't have any um, at all in Española or the surrounding communities, which I think that would be such a great thing because I have so many patients who really struggle with sobriety because their living situation is just not conducive to it. And also, the other thing, it's hard for many of my patients to meet sober friends. And so I think, you know, a housing um, uh, focused around sobriety would really be an important thing. Um, so those are the things from the treatment end. Like I said, I think we need to get people into treatment. And then I think we really need to work on prevention um, more than anything else. And when people think about prevention, what they really they often think about how do we prevent you know drug use, but we need to be thinking about it more broader of you know what can we do to bring industry to the area and you know there you go. Um, jobs because I find once people get jobs, I have so much more hope that they're going to stay uh, drug free. So one of the things that I had a discussion with uh, the mayor in Santa Fe a while back in terms of and they're putting a task force together in Santa Fe yeah. uh, for like to address the opioid mm-hmm. crisis. And one of the things that I've mentioned and I continue to mention is economic opportunity. 
And, oh, for sure. I'm really glad that you mentioned that because I think people don't realize that it's not when you're already looking at the on the addiction side of the fence, the physical dependence and all that mm -hmm. kind of stuff, you're missing how it happened in the first place. And what can we do to kind of build our community up instead of treat it after the fact? Let's, let's make addiction not yes. an issue anymore. Exactly. And, you know, there's this whole theory that the actual drug being used is not the issue. It's the underlying emptiness that a lot of people feel. Mm -hmm. And that you got to fix the emptiness, and I think you got to fix the drug as well. I mean, you can't fix it without getting rid of the drug because the drug definitely makes everything worse. But you know that there's a lot of people out there who just don't have that connection with other people, don't have anything in their life that they find meaningful. So, well, that's 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 probably one of the best, and not not that I like slogans or anything like that, but <laughs> fix the emptiness. That yeah. really kind of says a lot. It really does, and it kind of it kind of is interesting because you kind of segued into the next kind of question, and that is, what role do you think trauma plays within all of this? Um, I think trauma plays a huge role. I, I assume you've heard of adverse childhood events, mm -hmm. and um, we're realizing what a big um, effect adverse childhood events are having on um, people. And I have been amazed at the number of people I've taken care of for years and when we're talking just about their anxiety or something else, and it comes out their anxiety stems from, you know, when they were a teen and found their parents had overdosed or found, you know, uh, you know, lost their mother in a car accident or, you know, just this incredible trauma that people have been carrying with them for years. And um, so I there's definitely, you know, good studies that uh, the amount of trauma that people go through in their youth really contributes to their likelihood of a substance use disorder as an adult. And then I think also the other way around, that people with a substance use disorder just experience so many traumas as a result of that substance use disorder. They lose custody of their children, they are in bad accidents, um, they see their friends die, um, they go to jail. There are just so many traumas that people have. And I think addressing that trauma um, really is essential. Um, would you say it's a key component of a treatment program? Yeah. There's um, several programs in the area that do seeking safety, which is mm -hmm. really focused around trauma. And I, I think I've seen some people make some amazing turnarounds after it, having it, gone it, through that program. I, I give out that book because I think yeah. it, the manual, you can buy it off Amazon. And it, it really okay. does. I've given it to the Solis Treatment Facility because they, they uh -huh. you know, a lot. Of, that's one of the things that I kind of see is that a lot of, a lot of counseling organizations they aren't getting a lot of addiction-specific training. And there is this, I think uh, Dr. Njavitz was dead on right that you have to treat them both at the same time. Yeah. And I think that's what seeking safety allows, allows people to do. Um, have you have you used seeking safety? I have not myself. I, I keep thinking I should learn it, but I'm so swamped with well, what yeah, I am. You have like so much <laughs> on your own plate, yeah. Yeah, well, very cool. But I'm glad you mentioned that because I, I yeah. do, I took a training at, in Boston about five years ago on seeking safety, so it was, it was really, really a good training. Yeah. yeah, I do pick and choose some of the worksheets and things like that. There's because that offers such a wide, like with like uh, boundaries mm -hmm. and how to how to enforce boundaries, how to establish and enforce boundaries, and things like that. Yeah, and I think that's what trauma kind of does is breaks down the person's sense that they can have boundaries. That's interesting. I was talking with a counselor once about the work I do, and you know, I mentioned I take care of a lot of pregnant women, and she said. Do you worry about these women bonding with their children? I said, no, that's actually never been an issue. I mean, I find, if anything, that many of my patients, um, especially my pregnant moms who are using drugs, it's almost the opposite, that they are so 
willing to take care of everybody else before they take care of themselves. You know, that, and using drugs ends up being their sort of misguided way to take care of themselves. But I said, what I do worry about is boundaries, that a lot of these women do not have the boundaries with their children. Yeah. So. Well, that's interesting. And I do think that a lot, and especially in early New Mexico, I see that, that the lack of boundaries yeah. is is really a problem. So that's one of the things from Seeking Safety that I have kind of pilfered quite yeah. heavily is the idea of boundaries. Um, yeah. So my last question, and I kind of, based upon what we've talked about, um, I kind of know what you might say, I think <laughs> I might, but what are your thoughts on substance dependence or addiction being symptomatic rather than a root cause in and of itself? Um, so I was at a wonderful conference this summer and he actually made a comment that I think is really relevant here. He said, um, for many years there were sort of two different um, uh, theories among uh, treatment facilities. He said one treatment facility held that the mental any mental illness um, was completely secondary to the substance abuse and all you had to do is treat the substance abuse and the mental illness would go away. And he said the other ones were like that the substance abuse was completely, you know, due to the underlying mental illness and all you had to do was, you know, um, treat the mental illness and the substance abuse would go away. He said they are both there, they're intertwined, but you've got to treat both. You know, they're each their own separate problem. And so I wouldn't necessarily say substance use disorder is... Certainly, I have seen people who perfectly healthy family, um, you know, generally fairly um, strong sense of themselves who for whatever reason just at a bad place in their life ended up with a substance use disorder with no underlying problems. And then I've seen patients who have, you know, horrible underlying trauma and various other things. So I think it definitely it's intertwined, but um, substance use disorder is definitely its own entity and you need to treat that and you need to treat any underlying um, mental illness or psychosocial dysfunction or anything else that's going on. So it's kind of like a, a, a web that has to be kind of unwoven at the same time. Yeah, you can't just treat one. So I, was, I belong to this um, addiction physician group on Facebook, and one of the women posted something this week about a question about a urine drug screen, whether it was a false positive, and she said something along the lines of their psychiatrist wouldn't treat the patient until he'd had a month's worth of negative urine drug screens. And I was like... Um, may I ask why that is? <laughs> because it seems like the patient would have a much better chance of getting drug-free if you know you treated the underlying mental illness. And she said, "Believe me, I know that. I just cannot convince the psychiatrist of this." Oh, so, wow. wow, very cool. Well, that le- that's all my questions. Okay. Um, I really appreciate your time. I sure. really appreciate you making the time to to meet with me. Um, is there anything else you would like like leave us with a parting thought? Oh, I should have something good here, but I don't. No? Well, <laughs> you've given us a lot of really good information. I, I'm going to go look up the addict's mom the second I get back to my desk, because I think yeah. that's something that needs to be shared immediately. Yeah, no, it, it's... Um, I can't actually get into the site, because you have to, you know, you have to sort of say, be approved to get into okay. it, but I've heard really good things about it. Well, so. very cool. I appreciate all your, your answers and your, your candor and everything, and thank you very much, Dr. Hayes, for, You're welcome. for being thank with you us. You're welcome. Thank you for coming. Thank you very much.